This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Nearly half of all adults in the United States have some degree of hypertension, and it's one of the most common reasons patients are seen in an outpatient practice by their healthcare providers. The vast majority have essential hypertension, and they respond to a combination of lifestyle changes and often pharmacologic therapy. But a small percentage of these cases have secondary hypertension and often don't respond to therapy unless the underlying cause is found and treated. At times, it can be difficult to identify the cause of the secondary hypertension as the clues can sometimes be quite subtle or sometimes even non-existent. Our guest for today's podcast is Dr. Sandra Taylor from the Division of Nephrology and a hypertension specialist from the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss when you should suspect secondary hypertension, the clues the patient may give us regarding its cause and its management. Sandra, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, before we jump right into secondary hypertension, let's let our listeners know what you would consider the key to establishing a diagnosis of hypertension and what should we be doing in terms of our physical exam and what routine lab tests should we be performing? You know, hypertension requires measuring the blood pressure on at least two different occasions before you would make the diagnosis. And at each of those occasions, it's important to take the measurement correctly. These days, the gold standard is what's called an automated office blood pressure, which ideally would let you take a series of blood pressure measurements that are programmed into an instrument and the uh, provider or the assistant can leave the room. So the patient can be seated quietly alone and have several spaced out blood pressure measurements taken. And then the average of those measurements would be their blood pressure measurement. So hypertension is now defined as a blood pressure of 130 over 80 or higher. So it's really important that we take some of the noise out of the measurements and not do a blood pressure measurement on the fly. First of all, you would wanna check the blood pressure. um, And if it's high, depending how high it is, bring the patient back and get the blood pressure measured a second time before you would actually diagnose them as having hypertension. And then you want to do an exam. And really, every patient with hypertension merits a physical exam to look for abnormalities that might be a cause of the high blood pressure, and particularly that might be a clue to a secondary cause. And there are also certain basic labs that you would really want to do on everybody, either as part of making the diagnosis or looking for a secondary cause or results that you need in order to decide on treatment. So that would be um, typically a comprehensive metabolic panel because you wanna look at their blood sugar, you wanna know what the uric acid is, you wanna know what their serum calcium is before you would actually decide on any particular medication. Lipids should be measured because we're looking for overall cardiovascular risk. 
it's really important to do a urinalysis and ideally an albumin to creatinine ratio or what's called a spot or a random microalbumin to look for target organ damage in the kidney, which would make it more important to start therapy. You wanna check thyroid function with a TSH uh, at least. And then I would argue if once you've confirmed hypertension that you may wanna look at renin and aldosterone measurements earlier rather than later in the evaluation. So those are kind of the basics. One could argue also for an electrocardiogram to look for any signs of cardiac abnormality, left ventricular hypertrophy, for instance, would be important. Sandra, let me go back to something you said initially about making the diagnosis. The couple of blood pressure readings, do those need to be office readings or how valid are patients' home blood pressure readings, assuming they're using a proper technique and assuming their machine is accurate? Are, are those okay? Right. I mean, those are really good points. And the diagnosis is usually made by two separate office visits, but it's also important to look at out-of-office measurements. And the U.S. Preventive Services Group has actually endorsed using out-of-office ambulatory blood pressure monitoring when you're initially making a diagnosis of hypertension. So that would be in addition to the office readings to exclude people with strictly white coat hypertension. So those are people that you may not need to treat. Now, you would still need to do the office things, but the decision on treatment would be affected by whether their blood pressure is normal out of the office. For some groups where you don't have access to ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, patient home monitoring would be reasonable to look at. You want to make sure it's being done correctly. And I use uh, home monitoring a lot for treatment, whether it's lifestyle treatment or drug treatment, to help keep the patient clued in and focused on their blood pressure is something that's important and to help determine if they're controlled. All right. What's the definition of secondary hypertension? It's a little more complicated these days because before you actually decide somebody has secondary hypertension, you need to think about things that might lead to erroneous blood pressure measurements. So things like making sure that, that the measurement is taken correctly, looking at drugs that the patient may be taking that might be causing high blood pressure. But secondary hypertension is a cause outside of what you call essential hypertension, what I call primary hypertension, because it's not really essential. It's not normal. It's a condition that occurs. So it kind of a primary condition that needs to be addressed. So secondary hypertension is when there's something else besides the high blood pressure that occurs with age, family genetics, weight gain, those kinds of things. And it may be related to a, a kidney disease cause. It may be an endocrine cause. It may be sleep apnea. Those are all different causes that we would want to think about. So it's something in addition to the standard age-related high blood pressure. All right. So what's the thought on the percentage of those who have hypertension and then have secondary hypertension. How common is it? 
Well, it, it depends how you define it. So I would say that kidney disease is the most common cause of secondary hypertension, parenchymal kidney disease. But we don't usually think of that as a standard secondary cause. I do, but you know, because it's not something you can address, get rid of, and then you know, cure the secondary hypertension. If we counted kidney disease, it would be obviously a lot more common, maybe you know, 30, 40% of people with high blood pressure would have some kidney disease. But I think outside of that, we usually think of about 20%. The more resistant the hypertension or the more severe the hypertension, the more likely there's a secondary cause. So probably, you know, if you take all comers, it might be 10 to 20% of people have a secondary cause. And when you look at people with resistant hypertension or more severe hypertension, closer to that 20%. I suspect that the vast majority of hypertensive patients are managed by their primary care providers. So when should we suspect a patient has secondary hypertension? So there are some clues and there are clues from the history, there are clues from the exam, and there are clues from the lab. In the history, you would think about young age of onset, acute onset or acute worsening of hypertension, lability, again, that goes along with severity, but really kind of wide swings in, high bl in blood pressure, then changes in the person's function over time, things that might suggest Cushing syndrome, for instance, weight gain around the face, upper extremity, uh, proximal weakness, things like that, bruising, striae, things like that. Hyperthyroidism obviously is a secondary cause. So the typical things with weight loss, heat intolerance of hyperthyroidism. So it's kind of you know, anything unusual about new symptoms or more severe high blood pressure, or again, young people. Also, even somebody who's uh, older and didn't have high blood pressure and then has quite significant high blood pressure, that would be another uh, possible cause. So those are historical things. Then in the exam, I've already mentioned some of them. So cushionoid features, uh, facial fullness, uh, cervical fat pad, striae would be signs of Cushing syndrome, but really more severe Cushing syndrome. And, and often we pick it up earlier than that. For renovascular, I check for bruise in the neck and over the femoral arteries because people with bruise in other locations may also have abdominal disease. I do listen for abdominal bruise as well. So that would be for renovascular, for uh, thyroid disease, obviously reflexes, hyper and hypothyroidism can both be secondary causes. And in the labs, probably the most important would be the serum potassium and the creatinine. So elevated creatinine, obviously, for kidney disease. Hypokalemia can be a sign of renovascular disease, but also endocrine diseases, Cushing syndrome, as well as hyperaldosteronism. Thyroid abnormalities, obviously, uh, as I've already mentioned. And then the urine, if you see proteinuria or hematuria even, that might be a sign of kidney disease. Those are important for men. Prostate postrenal obstruction would be another potential cause. So prostate exam would be important there. I think those are most of the 
clues, but mm -hmm. there are clues. So in terms of doing a careful physical exam and then a set of basic labs and getting a good history, those will all help you to clue into whether you would want to work that patient up further or refer them. Now, according to the literature, there's a fair percentage of patients who have established hypertension but aren't adequately controlled. And we may suspect that they have secondary hypertension when in fact they may have more of a medication non-adherence. And I think hypertension has a big problem with that. What are ways that we can improve medication adherence in these patients with hypertension? I've often called non-adherence the elephant in the room. You know, it, it's there, it's always there. And it shows up in different ways or may not be evident at all. And when you ask somebody if they take their meds, which isn't a bad thing to do, especially when blood pressure is high, I think in the course of your conversation with the patient, maybe not the first thing you ask, but you could say, how often in a week do you miss a dose of your medication? Or I see that you have lot of medications that you're on and frequent dosing, you know, how often might you miss a dose? Because I, I could really understand that. And maybe that would open things up. But a lot of times patients will insist that they take their medication even when they don't. So, and that's been shown in uh, studies where they've done urine testing for drug metabolites. And, you know, you can argue about how well that would go in clinical practice if you sort of behind the scenes check if they're taking their meds. It, it hasn't uh, come into standard care, but invariably about 50% of patients in these studies don't take their meds or they don't take all of their meds, uh, at least. There are clues. So, if you expect to see certain changes in the labs, like um, hypokalemia, if they're on high-dose diuretics and they don't have it, or if they're on a beta blocker, but they're tachycardic, they're on full-dose amlodipine and they never have edema, that would be great. But there are sort of clues that maybe they're not really taking these meds. And the, the more medication someone has on their list, the more I'm concerned that they're not really getting them in, especially if they come in with uh, very high blood pressure readings. In terms of how to address it, I think that the best thing we can do is try to simplify the program as much as possible. Some people say start with combination drugs. And I think that's reasonable in the primary care setting to do. In my practice, because I see a lot of people who've had side effects to many medications, I'm hesitant to start a combination drug as their first exposure because if they get a side effect, then I can't tell which drug caused the side effect. So I would be more inclined, the more sensitive they are to medications to starting one drug and then adding another, but then Think about it afterwards, if you've got them controlled, can you simplify the regimen? Can, is there a combination drug that would take two pills and turn it into one? The other thing is to dose no more than twice a day. I think many people can deal with morning and night. You know, I get up in the morning, I take my pills. I get home at night, I take my pills. That's pretty much acceptable. But when you start 
three times a day, four times a day. I think it's just untenable. And try yourself to take a medication four times a day or even three. It's really difficult to do. So once a day would be ideal. Sometimes though, that's too much to take everything once a day or the effects will be too great at the beginning and then wear off towards the end. So I would say no more than twice a day. There are some triple drugs coming out in the US. The pricing may still be a problem it's more available in Europe. And hopefully that will come to us. You know, if you could put somebody on two pills once a day that gave them four drugs or something, then you really might get there in a lot of people. I think I found one of the most effective ways to keep patients taking their medication is first to spend the time with them talking about what is hypertension. And unfortunately, its name is kind of a misnomer because patients often feel that well, I'm taking this medicine, but I still feel tense. And I explained that that has nothing to do with it. And I also get them involved, something that you alluded to a little while ago, getting them involved in their care. So teaching them how to check their blood pressure, recording it, and then sending me the results or my clinical assistant, or maybe have a clinical assistant check back with them once in a while, but getting them actively involved. Medications for hypertension are stopped so often as are lipid medications, drugs for osteoporosis. And I think what they all have in common is that they're treating asymptomatic conditions and patients don't feel better. They assume that they're going to take a medication and feel better. And that's not the goal of our treatment. Right. I think we have to make clear that you're trying to maintain their health and prevent damage. So you're trying to prevent heart failure and heart failure is just, you know, increasing in terms of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction in particular, or diastolic dysfunction, which is directly related to years of untreated or inadequately treated hypertension. There are links with dementia. And if you can explain, you know, to patients that by treating their blood pressure, they can prevent one of the more common types of dementia, I think that is, again, convincing. And then the third area is kidney function. And I see a lot of people who are just learning about the fact that they have chronic kidney disease, and they're actually quite motivated to stay off dialysis and protect their kidney function. So I think discussion of why they're taking this medication is very important. And I also explain that you take the medication and it works that day. It's not like an infection where you take an antibiotic, you're done after a period of time and it's cured and it's gone. I mean, lipid lowering drugs, diabetes medications, uh, blood pressure medications are all ways to preserve your health, to control the disease, but they're not cures. And I, I think that's important. When I see people and I'm gonna change their medication, I try not to delegate it back to the primary provider because then we have more people and more opinions and it just doesn't always pass on that they'll, you know, initiate the changes that I recommend. So I will get the patient involved and ask them to check their blood pressure regularly, get their lab checked at a certain point, send those readings to me. And I will review them with, and I, we have nurse help with just getting them to me, but I personally review them and I let them know, you know, what I want to do next. And by doing that, you can titrate the medication. 
And I think that the electronic record really helps with that because you can get all of that back to you through a portal and review it and everything is all in the record. Well, Sandra, all of these points have been very useful. Can you summarize our discussion and maybe give maybe two or three important points uh, on secondary hypertension? Whenever you see a patient and you diagnose hypertension, it's important to think about secondary hypertension right off the bat. Could there be a secondary cause? How much workup should I do? And anything that's kind of off, it's quite severe. Hypokalemia for sure. That really ought to make you think right away, this is not normal. Even relative hypokalemia in the setting of kidney disease, this is not normal. So that should lead you to look further. Evidence of diffuse cardiovascular disease should make you think about secondary causes. Again, sudden onset or more severe. I think in the exam, you know, it's important to look for anything that's off. Do a certain set of labs just to be sure you're not missing something. Primary aldosteronism is considered rare. And it's more and more, we think it's not rare. And it's just not being looked for. So there are many patients who have primary aldosteronism who do not have hypokalemia. And so you can't just look at, well, if they don't have hypokalemia, I don't need to even think about it. And what it really is, is it, it could even be a spectrum where there are people who make more aldosterone than they need. And it leads to more salt and water retention. And it may not even get to the point of true primary aldosteronism, similar to an adrenal adenoma. But if you block aldosterone in the course of treating them, you'll get much better control. So I think that doing the plasma renin and aldosterone, and they need to be drawn together at the same time, is an appropriate initial screen. But there's even evidence that you'll miss probably more than half of people with aldosterone excess by doing that. So even if you do the aldosterone to renin ratio and it's not 20 to one or higher, if the renin is low or undetectable, then you need to think further. All right, this person may still have primary aldosteronism and either refer them or go on to salt loading and looking at a urine aldosterone. So that's an area that really needs more focus by primary care providers. Well, we've been discussing secondary hypertension with Dr. Sandra Taylor, a hypertension specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Sandra, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Uh, it was a great discussion. Well, thank you for having me, and it was a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.